We started a series of, of messages last week called Amazing Stories. And this is where I quiz you, all right? How many of you were here last week? Some of you are like, I don't know that I want to admit that, all right? Because of what's coming next. All right, so who did we talk about last week? Noah, right? And we talked about this new uh, kind of look at a story that's become very familiar to us and had several of you just in passing conversation talk to me about how you saw that story in a new way, a, a different light. And we learned some things about Noah and we learned some things about God and some things about what it means when the world gets in the shape that it was in with Noah, that God absolutely hates that and that he'll do anything to rectify it. We talked about the fact that Noah was not generally a, a children's story if you follow the whole story because there were lots of people who died, right? Like everybody but Noah and his family died. And so we talked about that and the, and, and the new birth, the, the reboot, the new beginning that came following that. Well, today we're talking about not David and Goliath, all right? That's false advertising, right? When the preacher puts something in there and tells the music guy, that's what we're going to talk about, and then we talk about something different. But we're not talking about that. And so I want to take you to get your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. The Lord just laid on my heart to go in a different direction. I, I think we'll do David and Goliath next week, but we trust the Lord in the midst of that as well. And we're actually not going to look at one amazing story this week. We're going to look at a string of amazing stories featuring one particular guy. All right. And so in first Kings chapter 16, we have the beginning of the story of this guy, but it begins not with him, but with his adversary. This is one of those storytelling devices where uh, they do this in movies. They do this in other things where they introduce the villain before they bring in the hero. And so what's going to happen here in first Kings chapter 16 is we're going to get an introduction to the villain before the hero comes on the scene. If you've got your Bibles open to 1 Kings 16, it, it, we're going to start in verse 29. If you don't, just listen. It was intended to be a story anyway, so just listen. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's king Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Verse 30. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Now, there are a lot of things that could be written about you that aren't pleasant. Right? They could write a lot of things about you that aren't pleasant. But I think one of the most unpleasant things could be written about you is you did more evil in the sight of the Lord than anyone had ever done. That's Ahab. Now, here's what's interesting about it. If you look up just a few verses... Like in verse 25 about his dad. His dad Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did more evil than all of those who were before him. In fact, what this is emphasizing is like father, like son. His name even kind of means that. The name Ahab in the original Hebrew means one like his dad's brother. Which was a phrase to say they were exactly alike. Anybody ever seen a dad and a son that looked alike? Okay. You can look on the front row, right? There's Eli's raising his hand over here. He's, he's seen it, right? Now, there are some ways that's okay, right? That's good. I, we we, we, we um, have traits and those kind of things we pass on to our kids that, that we, we don't mind them having. 
Well, in this case, this is not a good thing. Now, in case we don't know, well, what did he do that was so bad? Well, it goes on to tell us. Then, (laughs) this is what I love. He did more bad than anybody had ever done. And then, he added to it. As if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, were a trivial matter. As if denying what the Lord was supposed to do was trivial, he made worse. He married Jezebel. That name just sounds evil, doesn't it? Jezebel. In fact, in the New Testament, it came to meet evil woman. All right? And you don't ever want to be called a Jezebel. At least, I especially not, because I'm not a woman. But if you're a woman... You know what we call that. The daughter of, and here's the kind of thing, the Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and worship here. So here's what happened. This looked like a brilliant political move. There were two countries. There was the northern kingdom where Ahab was, was governing. At this time, Israel was in two parts. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was going through a pretty peaceful time with King Asa. He served for years while the northern kingdom was fighting amongst itself. And so the northern kingdom looked, and there was this nation called Syria that was causing problems for everybody around them. And on the other side of Syria was this Tyre and Sidon. And what happened is, King Ahab thinks, if I just marry the daughter of that king, our nations can be united against this Syria. Seemed like a brilliant political move. Here's the problem. They didn't worship God, right? Now, I know you know this, but brilliant political moves aren't always wise religious moves. And they marry, and the problem is Jezebel comes in, and even more than Solomon's wives, she is aggressive about the worship of Baal. And so Ahab, it seems, it's a slippery slope. We'll use that phrase, but it really happens here. Ahab, it seems, sets up a place to worship Baal, but doesn't go there right at first, but then gradually becomes more and more involved until the king of Israel, the king of God's people, is participating in worship in another God's temple. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. No, that's bad. Right? He was a traitor against his nation and his God. And what do subjects of a nation who have a king generally do when their king goes in one direction? They follow. And so in chapter 16, we have this terrible situation in the place of Israel. As we enter into chapter 17, we're not going to read every verse in the next three chapters and all of God's people said, Amen. All right. We're going to skip around a little bit. But in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now Elijah. Now, we don't know anything about Elijah except for this moment. He just burst onto the scene. Elijah the Tishbite. We don't even know where he's from because we don't know where Tish is. Scholars don't know where it is. So this is, when I was growing up, I used to watch wrestling. Yeah, don't judge me, alright? And they would have a masked man come on from parts unknown, right? Well, we have our masked man from parts unknown, Elijah, alright? And he steps onto the scene. Now, we have a pretty good idea about what he's going to preach because of his name. 
His name is the combination of two words for God from the Old Testament. El and Jah, which is for Yahweh. And there's a little I in the middle, right? A-L-I. I know how to spell that name. J-A-H. All right? And it means Yahweh is my God. So from the very introduction, we know what he's going to preach about. We know what he's going to talk about. And I love how how Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead Settlers said to Ahab. He just, it looks like that he caught him unawares, he ambushed him, or he walked right into the court and he said, As the Lord of God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. He's talking about serious business here. How do they get most of their stuff? I mean, how do they get their food? They, they grew it, right? How do they get the things for um, even their clothing and their housing and all? They, they grew it. It was from the ground, right? And a severe drought would have been completely detrimental to their society. It, it also goes directly at Jezebel's God, who, according to legend, Baal, one of the things he was God of was the storm, the rain. And so Elijah, now imagine the courage this took, walks into the king of Israel and says, by the God's command, there will be no rain. Or do in the land. I really thought that there would be no better day to talk about drought and fire than today. Right? But we know what drought's like, but imagine drought for an extended period of time. What I love in verse 2, it says, A revelation from the Lord came to him and said, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide yourself at the Wadi Cherith. You are to drink from the Wadi, and I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Miracle number one is the no rain. Miracle number two is the delivery service of the ravens. He did what the Lord commanded Elijah left and lived where it enters in Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and the evening, and he drank from the wadi. But after a while, the wadi dried up because there was no rain in the land. God sends Elijah and says to the king, we're going directly at who you are. You say you've started worshiping Baal. I'm going to prove that God is mightier than anything. It's like what he did in the plagues of Egypt, when each plague directly corresponded to a god of Egypt. It's like what he did when he would go directly with other prophets and he would say, this is what the Lord will do, let's see if you can do it. So they get together and he says there's not going to be no rain and he leaves the area. I love this picture of him just walking in among the king and saying, there's no rain going to be here, I'll see you in a little while. And he disappears. The problem becomes when there's nothing there for him to drink. The ravens are still providing food, but there's no drink. So what does he do? He sends Elijah where? To a widow's house. It says, the word of the Lord said, go and I've commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So he went. We arrived. There was a widow gathering wood. He called to her, bring me some water. She went to get it. He called and said, bring me the piece of bread in your hand. So he says, she says, listen, I ain't got anything. 
I'm a widow. I can't make a living. It's a drought. Don't you understand? And I can't have anything to make this bread. And she says, he says, don't worry. Do as I've said. And then he says this in verse 14 of chapter 17. The Lord God of Israel says, The flour jar will not become empty, and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. She did what the Lord said, and the flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry. This little side note, this isn't in the planned lessons we're going to learn at the end of this story because we still got the major part of the story to come. But here's what I see every time I read the Old Testament. I see these unbelievable, amazing stories of God. Is I see God acting in amazing ways and I see people obeying immediately. Sometimes as believers we act like God can't work miraculous anymore. It's not God who's lost its power. It may be us that has lost our obedience. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. It may be that we're not in complete obedience, right? God says to Elijah, go tell the king there's going to be no rain. What does Elijah do? He tells the king there's not going to be any rain. He says, go and get in this cave and listen to this. Now think about it. And we read this and we go, of course, that's what God is going to provide. He says, ravens are going to bring you food every day. Now, I know ravens bring people food all the time today, but back then that wasn't the case. Every day. As regular as FedEx, they're coming. And then he says, now I want you to go and find this widow and tell her it's going to be okay. I know she doesn't have any money. I know she doesn't have much flour. But tell her that as long as she cooks for you and gives you water, it'll never run dry. And he obeys. Now what's more amazing to me is not Elijah obeying, it's the widow. Because we find out in the next verse, That things didn't happen like she wanted them to happen. She starts providing for him. And what happens in verse 17? Her son dies. She says, listen, man of God, I wish you wouldn't have come into my house because you came, I'm reminded of my sin. And it had to kill my son. And Elijah said, give me your son. And I love this picture. He laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord. Then he stretched himself over the body three times crying out, Please let this boy's life return. So the Lord listened to Elijah. The boy's life returned and he lived. Verse 24. I know you're a man of God and the Lord's word is in your mouth. And it's the truth. Now you thought she might have got that when the flower and the water didn't stop. But some of us are a little thick-headed. Amen? At least somebody you know. At least. Don't point. And so we get to verse 1 of chapter 18. My favorite power encounter in the Bible. After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. How many years had the drought been going on? Three. Do you think they were kind of desperate? Can you imagine if we didn't get any rain or dew for three years? Three years. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. That's one of those, you kind of knew that was coming. So this prophet gets together and they get everybody together. And Ahab, he finally says, listen, you don't need to go before Ahab. As soon as you step foot at Ahab's court, he's going to kill you. And Elijah just says, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. Go tell him I'm coming. Say, your Lord, Elijah is here. 
So Elijah goes before him in verse 15 and says, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand today, today I will present myself to Ahab, Obadiah. That's not the same one that wrote the book, but it's, an, it's somebody that's probably second in command there with Ahab, who served the Lord, went to Ahab and said, here's what's happening. And so they get together. When Ahab saw Elijah in verse 17, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you destroyer of Israel? You know what I love about Elijah? is he was one of the best trash talkers that has ever lived. You know what trash talking is. When you're playing a sport, you kind of say, you know. I I was never good enough at sports to trash talk. I tried it a couple of times, and it did not work out well for me. Elijah was good enough to do it. Look what he says in verse 18 to the king. I haven't destroyed Israel, but you have. And your father's house have, because you abandoned the Lord's command and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring it on. It's time to see who's right. So they gather, right? You know the story. Summons all the Israelites and Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? A way that you could say that is, how long will you ride the fence? The actual version of that, the actual, what it says there is, how long will you hop from one foot to another, dancing between two opinions? How long will you try to have your cake and eat it too? If Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people didn't answer Him. So He said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. This is a place where I shouldn't win. Let two bulls be given. They're to choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, place it on the wood but not light it. I'll prepare the other one. Then call on the name of your God. I'll call on Yahweh. And the God who answers with fire, He is God. All the people answered. I love this. In the original, the actual phrase is just, that good. All right? Now, in your Bibles, it's probably going to say, that sounds good or that is pleasing to us. But the original is just, that good. Elijah said to the prophets, y'all go first. So they took the bull he gave him, prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. They, and they did their lame dance around the altar they had made. Here's the interesting thing. The dance that they did around the altar, it's the same word for when Elijah says, how long are you going to dance between two opinions? So they go around and they start dancing, and here comes Elijah, the trash talker again. Verse 27, At noon Elijah said, shout loudly. He may be thinking it over. He may not be able to hear you. Maybe he has wandered away. Now, some of you have heard me preach around, not this passage, but in places around it. Does anybody remember what he actually said there? It's not maybe he wandered away. It's maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe he's indisposed at the moment. Maybe he's away. Do you think he's having a little fun with this? Or maybe he's on the road. Maybe he's taking a little vacation. Perhaps he's sleeping. And he'll wake up. 
They shouted loudly. They cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed out of them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. In Scripture, whenever they do things in three, it is done for emphasis. So when they say, no one sound, no one answered, no one paid attention, the idea is there was no one to answer or to make a sound. And then I love what Elijah does. Elijah was a master of drama. He let them go on for hours. Then he says, I get almost like he probably whispered it. Y'all come here. He repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Probably during this administration. He took 12 stones. Why would he take 12 stones? 12 tribes which to them would have been a sign that he believed in Yahweh completely because at this time there weren't 12 tribes living together. There was a northern and a southern. He built an altar with the storms. He made a trench around the altar. Next he arranged the wood, cut up the bull and placed it on the wood and he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned. Let me ask you a question. In a land that has been in drought for three years, what's the most important commodity they have? So it wasn't just, hey, let's pour the water on it because this will be more fun. Although I think there's an element of that for Elijah. It's, if you want to see God work, you pour your most important thing on the altar. This is Abraham and Isaac-like. Then he said a second time, a third time. So the router ran all over the altar, even filled the trench. And you know there were people around going, we shouldn't have wasted all that water. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached the altar. And my guess is there could be no sound there except his voice. Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you alone are God and that I am your servant. And at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. In verse 38, you know the story. Yahweh's fire fell, consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and then this beautiful imagery, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and they almost shout Elijah's name. Instead of Yahweh is my God, they say Yahweh is God. Yahweh, He is God. Now, by the way, We often end the story there because that's a nice place to end the story. But what happens after that? What do they do with the prophets of Baal? Bring them and they kill them, right? And then, and I love this, go up, look toward the sea. So he went up and said, there's nothing. And Elijah said seven times, there's that number, go back. And on the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming from the sea. Elijah had restored the moment when the rain would come. A few lessons real quickly out of this story, all right? 
First of all, last week we started with this idea that God hates sin. Y'all remember that? God hates sin. Well, this week it's similar, but it's a little different variety, and it's simply this. God hates idolatry. Right? What was Ahab's major sin? He married Jezebel, and then he did what? He worshipped Baal. He built a place for Baal. He worshipped Baal. He also put up Asherah poles, which was another god. And what's interesting is, in verse 33, way back in chapter 16, after it says he did all that, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all of the kings of Israel who went before him. Saying that Ahab had taken the country into idolatry. Now here's the thing. Most of us in this room, I'm going to guess, don't have a problem walking into a foreign god's worship center and worshipping. I'm going to guess that. But idolatry today is much more seductive and secretive than it used to be. If you remember, it's been a couple of years ago now, we did a series of sermons called Respectable Idols. And we talked about idols of our soul that can rob us from worshiping God. And idols today, more often than not, are things that we wouldn't immediately think of as idols and can be good things that drive our heart away from the Lord. And one way to understand an idol is anything you depend on more than God is an idol. Anything you think about more than God is an idol. Anything you dwell on more than God is an idol. And so for many in this room, idolatry is still an issue. Whether it's your family, or your finances, or your career. Whether it's good works, or social clubs, or even church stuff. If it takes the place of God Almighty in any way, it is is an idol. And we see from this story, God hates idolatry. Do you think people died in the three-year drought? Yeah. If there was a three-year drought around here, would people die? Yeah. God hates idolatry. What did they do with the prophets of Baal at the end? They forgave them and told them to go and not sin anymore. Is that what they did? What they do? They slaughtered them, right? Killed them all. This entire story is about God communicating to the people of Israel, idolatry is wrong. In your life, you need to ask the question, what do you dwell on more than God? What do you spend money on more than God? What do you spend time on more than your relationship with the Lord? What's more important to you than the Lord? And ask the Lord to remove that from your life. Here's a second lesson from this passage is that fervent prayer is not enough. Who prayed the most fervently in this passage? The prophets of Baal, right? How fervently did they pray? How long did they pray? Hours. Six, seven, eight hours. What did they do while they were praying? They danced. Anybody here danced while you prayed lately? I know it's a Baptist church, but... You know, what else they do? They cut themselves. Fervent prayer is not enough. Some people say, listen, all we got to do is pray more, 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 more. Prayer, just fervent prayer is not enough. Now, I know some of you are looking at me weird. I'll get there in a minute, all right? 
If we're in a praying contest about who prays more fervently with the religions of the world, guess what? We lose. Muslims pray every day, multiple times a day, fervently. Orthodox Jews pray every day, fervently. Hindus, every day, fervently. The average believer, not every day, not fervently. The average pastor spends three to five minutes in prayer a day. If the average pastor spends three to five minutes in prayer, what does the average member spend in prayer? So sometimes we come to this thing and we just go, we just got to pray more, we got to pray more. If we prayed more, everything will be all right. But that's not the answer. The answer is praying to the right God in the right way about the right things. Amen? The problem with the prophets of Baal was they didn't have the right God. No one was there to hear. No one listened. No one replied. And they weren't praying about the right things. And they weren't praying in the right way. What I love about Elijah, it's a very simple prayer. He says, Lord God, You are King. You are Ruler. You are God. Show these people You are God. I've been speaking for You. Come now, do what you can do to prove to them you are God. His prayer is all about God. You know why Elijah could be so confident? It's because he knew God. That's why he can say, where's your, where's your God? Has he gone to the bathroom? Did he take a vacation? Is he sleeping a little bit? Taking a nap? Fervent prayer is not enough. Prayer to the right God in the right way about the right things is what's required. And here's the last thing. Fence riding is not an option. How long will you waver between two opinions? In the New Testament, James says that those that go back and forth are double-minded, easily sway. Fence riding is not an option. I think it's easier than ever in America today, but it's not an option with Almighty God. And so the question that I have is, what are you riding the fence about? What's the Lord calling you to commit to do for Him and for His glory? Maybe you don't even know. Maybe you don't have any idea. And your fence writing has been, you haven't even been searching that out, and it's time to do that. Let me ask you today, would you stop wavering? And as Joshua said, choose this day to serve the Lord. Let's pray together.